you're turning your Bibles, please, to uh, Mark chapter 11. Uh, I was going to try to think of a witty, funny story, but I remember the last time I did that, if you were here, uh, there's nothing funny about it. So I will refrain from any humor, learn my lesson. So I'm just going to read this. So we're going to look at uh, the end of chapter 11 and then the beginning, the parable in chapter 12, because they link together uh, as Jesus is confronted about his authority. And does Jesus really have authority? So let me read just the first section, which is the uh, beginning at verse 27 in Mark 11. Uh, I'm just going to read to the end of the chapter. It says, They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, uh, and Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then do you not believe him? But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people. They all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So as Mark has written this gospel, really he's addressed the big idea of the identity of Jesus. And this is significant not only for those in the first century, this is significant for every person who's ever lived on this earth. Uh, What is the identity of Jesus? Who is this man who walked, did miraculous things, fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, lived a perfect life, died, and rose again? Who is this man? Mark begins to reveal throughout this this book who Jesus is. And he's really explaining how Jesus is the good news. But in this section, Mark addresses not only who Jesus is, But he's really addressing, will people believe? Because it's one thing to say, this is the identity of Jesus. It is a whole other thing for someone to say, I believe in that. I rest in that. I trust in that. They're two separate things. I believe there are people here today in this room who think that just knowing the facts about Jesus is really equal to believing. But it's not. Knowing the facts about something is not equal to believing. The question which Jesus replies with is really significant. Jesus does not answer this question to provoke an argument. He could have easily said, when they asked, what authority do you have? Who gave it to you? He could have said, I have all authority. I have it because I am the eternal son of God, and it's over. But he doesn't do that. Again, he asks them a question because he wants to understand Why are you not believing? Of all the things you've seen, why are the scribes and the elders, why are they not believing? His concern was not giving more evidence for who he was, but his concern was their unbelief. Jesus wanted these religious leaders, these chief priests and scribes and elders, he wanted them to act in faith. He did not want them to gain more information. They had enough to understand who Jesus was. 
So Jesus' question is, he says, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these. And he goes back to John, John the Baptist. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And Jesus is very direct. Give me an answer. You answer this question, and you're really answering your own question that you asked me. So what do you say the answer is? And Jesus points them back to, really, John the Baptist, who is someone they all have had seen. Many of them maybe have met personally. He was a real person who walked, and they knew him. He did not point back to the prophets in the Old Testament, where someone can form some argument maybe of uh, a false understanding. But they said, no, John the Baptist, you know who he was. All these people in front of you say he's a prophet, And Jesus knows they are scared of these people because what they understand is the truth. John the Baptist being a prophet was very common. It was a known thing. And John's ministry was to prepare the way of the Lord. So if they were to say John's baptism was from heaven and his calling and his mission was to prepare the way of the Lord, then they would have known that Jesus is the Lord. But they did not want to believe that. But the religious leaders were not interested in dialogue or answers. Uh, They were looking to trap Jesus. They viewed him as a threat to their well-being. They viewed Jesus as a threat to their well-being. Some of us in this room have been Christians for so long, we read that and go, how could that ever be? But really, think through that. It was a threat to their well-being. When you understand the gospel, you find comfort in Jesus. When someone, when, they do not, when someone does not understand the gospel, there's no comfort in Jesus. There's only suspicion. There's only wonder. And there's concern. And they're cautious because it doesn't make any sense to them. You might be here this morning and fall into that camp. But sometimes as Christians, we forget that that believing in Jesus is a scary thing. And even Christians here can admit that. It's a scary thing. But believing in Jesus, there's comfort and there's peace. Because Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the one that has all authority over all things. So here's the threat to their well-being, because they really knew That if Jesus was really God, then that changed everything. So the religious system that the Pharisees and Sadducees and chief priests, that they set up, if Jesus was really God, all of this religious work crumbled. Because we've seen, uh, starting in chapter 10 in Mark, about the kingdom of God. And who is welcome in the kingdom of God? It's not the religious leaders who come with all their awards of everything they've done. The kingdom of God is for the broken, the peasant, the prostitute, the one who knows, truly knows, they have no standing before a holy God. But the religious during this day, all their work was to prove that they had a standing with God. So Jesus addresses them with their understanding of authority. Jesus really then paints this great picture of uh, in this parable and uh, addresses the Pharisees and Sadducees, the rulers. 
Uh, it's interesting that we have this parable, and sometimes parables are uh, sort of like a shotgun. That uh, they're just they're there to pierce a whole bunch of things in people's hearts. This one, it is a sharp sniper bullet that pierces the hearts of the religious. That is its aim. It's not to just spatter in general that we're all sinful. This is to point specifically at those who truly believe they have a standing with God in their own work and they don't need a savior for anything. So let me read this parable and then we'll walk through this. So beginning of verse 12, it says, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower, and he leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And they sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. They had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance is ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected was become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told them he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. They understood. But it wasn't enough information to understand what they were called to do. Because they did not want to believe. Because they knew it would transform and change everything in their life. What did they understand, though? Did they understand that in this parable, God is the owner who purchases this vineyard and plants it? Did they understand the vineyard as God's people? Did they understand that the sent servants were the prophets of God? Did they understand that the son here that is killed is Jesus? Did they understand that he was the one standing before them explaining this parable? The vine dressers and the troublemakers and the tenants were the religious leaders. The leaders feared people, but Jesus gives them a direct public rebuke of their hypocrisy. He does not play games with them. He specifically tells them, what you think you own is not yours. What you think you have ultimate authority over is not yours. Because God created it. Uh, uh, R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on Mark, writes a little passage on this. Let me read. He says, When the Son of Man walked the earth from the time of his birth and then the time of his execution, there was never a moment when his life was safe among human beings. Our fallen nature is such that we are not simply 
that we are not simply, excuse me, I can't get this word out. He is not simply indifferent to God. We hate God. God is our mortal enemy. And fallen human beings will stop at nothing in their attempts to throw off the sovereignty of their creator. The Bible never, ever explains man as neutral. Ever. Descriptions of man are, uh, we hate God. We are born in enmity. Uh, We have hatred that someone else has authority over us. That's one category. The other category is we are the beloved. We are heirs. We are children. Those are the only two categories in the Bible. And it is these people who are enemies who become these people. And that's the gospel. And the only reason this happens is not because these people learn that they need to be better people. It's that God sees us and sees how we hate that someone else has the ability to rule over us. And what does he do? He transforms our heart. He changes us. And he puts us in this place. And he makes us his children. By his covenant, we are his. We will always be his. And this is his work. He does this. If we can understand this whole story and this whole parable of this painting that God is making. It is God, a God who is absolutely gracious, who will go to any lengths to bring back his people from the slavery that they are in and to give them sight and to give them peace and to give them hope. That is how gracious God is. He does not take us out of this place and put us on this slope where we're neutral and then leave us and say, okay, you get to make another choice. He says, you hated me and I transformed you and I made you a new creation. That's what he does. So as we read through this parable, what are responses? There are two responses. There's either belief or unbelief. Belief is humbly seeing God revealed in this and receiving his son. Or unbelief. And, you know, I think sometimes we talk about belief and unbelief, and we think as Christians, uh, we believe, so then we just believe everything. Like, it is a big B believe, and we never doubt or have unbelief. That's not really so. There's a big belief in I trust in Jesus. And every day, That is our calling, to trust in Jesus. But we do many times live over here, and we live in unbelief. Uh, Why do you have unbelief in your life? Not, Not an academic answer. In your own personal life, what are things that you struggle to believe? What are things that you do not want to believe? You might think, well, I I believe, but I just need more evidence. And that's going to cure my unbelief. Well, it's not going to because what you're doing is you're setting this level of this is the evidence I need, and then I won't have unbelief anymore. God has given us all that we need. 
Or you may be someone who is so depressed and so hurt that you cannot believe that your life is worth the life of another. That you think of your own life and you think you are so worthless that this is never possible. Or you may say, I don't have to believe. I don't have to believe anything. And you live in your pride of not having to have anything, any kind of belief system in your life. You might think you don't need any help. The religious leaders attempted to throw off the sovereignty of their creator. And it is seen in their desire to kill Jesus. That was their answer. We can't do anything about this Jesus. John was a prophet. Everyone knows John came to prepare the way of the Lord. The only thing we can do is kill Jesus, and then life can go back to normal. They wanted to rid the world of the one they believed was their enemy. And in one way, he was the enemy of the life that they created. The life that they built, the value system that they created when they said, this is what means to be a good person. And I'm filling these categories. And Jesus is my enemy because he's telling me there's no good in me. Good is Jesus. And that's offensive. Jesus is seen as their enemy because he comes to undo their own selfishness. He comes to make everything right, wrong again. And this is offensive because like the religious leaders Many believe that we are right and God is wrong. I think that is the core of our unbelief. That there's something in us that says, I believe in God, and I believe in Jesus, and I rest in him. But then this thing over here that, that is addressed in the Bible, I don't think God had it right. I think I know more. This is a better answer than this. Really, at the root of our unbelief is really, we don't want God to be sovereign. We want to be. We want to be the one with full control. But all of us here has lived long enough to know that is not possible. Looking back on my life, I see so many wrong, sinful, poor choices that I made because I did not listen to people's wisdom and I did not believe the truth. There's something prevalent in our culture that hates authority, that hates to be told when someone tells us this is the way you do something. <clears throat> we don't like hierarchy. We don't like accountability. We feel threatened or less important. We fight being told no or you're wrong. Um, I remember when I was, I worked for two guys and we were remodeling houses and um, uh, I was prideful in my youth. I've overcome all of that, though. Um, but I remember he was told, like, you need to go build this wall. We were, I think we were doing a basement. I was like, okay. So I went and did it. It was fine. But he came over and said, no, 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 you can't do it that way. You got it this way. And I could feel the defensiveness and the anger in me because I had my significance in, I know how to do this. You don't need to tell me. 
And have you ever had that where you just feel it getting hot? And sometimes it just comes out of your mouth. And sometimes you have a little bit of self-control and it does not. What is the root of that in your life? Why does that happen? Why do you get defensive and angry when someone tells you no or you're wrong or corrects you? I was reading an article this week, and in this article, they, someone posed, the author posed the question, can a faithful follower of Christ refuse to be told no? That's a hard thing. Can a faithful follower of Christ be someone who refuses to be told no? This is understanding of repentance, that we are told no. We are told we're wrong because we are not God. Because of the rebellion and selfishness of the vine dressers, uh, we read the end of this parable, starting at verse 9. It says, what will this is interesting. He doesn't say, what could the owner do? Uh, what might the owner do? Verse 9 says, what will the owner do with the vineyard? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The owner justly comes to save his vineyard, to rid it of the wicked workers who have overtaken it and killed all of his messengers. They have hijacked it. Isaiah 5 describes uh, Israel, God's people, as a vineyard. This parable ends with the focus shifting from the Son of God to this mention of a stone. So in this parable, it's the Son of God who is, who is uh, rejected, and who is killed. And then there's Psalm 118 that's quoted here about a stone who is rejected. Stone rejected is Jesus. He becomes the cornerstone, the most valuable cornerstone. Uh, in, in Hebrew, the word stone and son, uh, there's only one letter that's different. He's communicating what's rejected in the son it's the same thing that's rejected in the stone, that Jesus is the Messiah. They were rejected because of their blindness and unwillingness to see something greater. There's a great story by H.G. Uh, Wells <clears throat> called The Valley of Blindness. It's a fictional story of a man who climbs a mountain in Ecuador, and he climbs up one side, and he descends the other side, and as he descends, he comes upon a village. And in this village, he notices all the paths are, uh, on each side of the paths, have curbs of dirt. And he notices every house, there are no windows. And as he begins to meet people, he begins to realize everyone is blind in the entire village. No one can see. And his first thought is, in the valley of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So his thought was, I can help these people. They can't see they're blind. They don't know things that I know. I can help them. So he begins to tell them what sight is and what things look like. And to them, he is crazy. He is ridiculous. 
he's labeled as unstable and obsessed with this false idea of sight. And the villagers, the elders of the village, finally convince him that the only way that this man can stay in this village is if they pluck his eyes out. Because they don't want to be told there's something greater that they cannot see. The great problem is that God sees and knows more than we do, and we don't trust him. That's our great problem. We don't trust God. We don't trust that God has more sight than we do, that God of his love for his people sent his beloved son as ransom. Jesus, the son, died to set us free, and we struggle because we don't believe this story. We don't believe that God's love is so strong and so big and is so passionate that it is worth the death of his eternal son to unite us to him. We don't believe that. At the root of all of our longing in life is this, to be loved, to be accepted, to be forgiven, and to live without shame. And that is only done in Christ really a, a summary of this parable is the end of Psalm 2, where it says, kiss the son, which basically means pay homage to the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is a simple call to take refuge in God, to pay homage to the God of creation, that he is the one who's in control. And as we wrestle with our unbelief, that we ask ourselves the hard questions of why do we have this? What is the pride that we have in our life that creates unbelief? The only thing, the things that help us in our growth and faith are God's word, fellowship among people who believe, and coming to the Lord's table. These are things that remind us and nourish us. So this morning, as we come to the Lord's table, this is a table that nourishes, that really it is the table of, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, this is not the table for people who uh, feel like they've earned something. This is a table for uh, you and I specifically, the ones here this morning who say, I believe in Christ, but help my unbelief and forgive my sin as I've lashed out against people this week, as I've been selfish, as I've shut people out of my life, as I've looked at things on the internet or computer that I should not have looked on, that are clearly sinful, as I've uh, abused people and I've manipulated them. Uh, that's who this table is for. And, and coming to this table, we come in repentance. We come to receive what God provides for us. So let me read out of Mark 14 about this table. It says, they were eating. He took bread, and after it, he blessed it and broke it, and he gave it to them. He said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and he had given thanks. He gave it to them, and he drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it. 
And he said, this is my body. Uh, knowing what was coming was his crucifixion. He took the wine, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Drink of it, all of you. And remember, the peace that you have only comes through this sacrifice, through nothing else. If you are the ones this morning helping with the elements, would you please come forward? This table is for anyone this morning who can say, I trust in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. And I actively live a life of repentance and resting in him. Uh, If you are here this morning and you don't believe anything we talked about, uh, we are very glad you are here. And we ask that you please come and join us. But we do ask that you respect the words of scripture, of the book that is holy to us, and refrain from coming. Because it says you can drink judgment on yourself. And there are some prayers in your order of worship that you can read, as hopefully you're probably searching for truth. If you're here this morning and uh, you have children, we ask you bring your children up with you, and we'd love to pray for them. Uh, if they haven't proclaimed their faith uh, within the church, then we ask that we pray for them and they uh, let the elements pass before them. Uh, We have, the way we do communion here is we begin at the back rows and we come forward on the outside aisles. As you come forward, uh, we have, this is important, uh, red wine and white grape juice. Uh, Gluten-free bread is on the bottom and is cut. Um, So let me pray before we come forward. Lord God of all mercy, As we come to receive this sacrament of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that it would nourish us spiritually, that your spirit would remind us of the grace and forgiveness that is provided. We pray as we come forward that we would be strengthened, that we would understand the great love that you have for your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So it is with great joy this morning that I invite you to come forward and receive this sacrament.
If you have not taken of the sacraments, please do. Uh, This is the body of Christ that is broken for you. It's the blood of Christ that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. As many of you know, I have a son who uh, is extremely shy and likes to be extremely stoic when he